The Evolve with Pete Evans podcast is a conversation about my favorite ingredients for a healthy human experience. We take an informed look at topics that include nutritional and emotional well-being as well as expanded consciousness. I love exploring the topics that are not traditionally taught at school and take a deep dive into them with my special guests. I invite you to sit back and come along for the ride with an open mind and heart and please share with your family and friends as these podcasts may just be the seed from which many things will flourish from. Cheers. We've been using Waters Co. water filters for the last 10 years and I wholeheartedly trust my family's health with them. Waters Co., established 1977, have personal and domestic water filters, which turns your ordinary tap water into great-tasting, alkaline, ionized mineral water, which removes up to 99.9% of fluoride, heavy metals, chemicals, and bacteria, so you can love your tap water again. The Bio 1000 is the latest edition of the BMP 1000 model and the culmination of over 40 years of experience and research into water filtration by some of the world's leading scientists. Waters Co. was first to market with natural gravity-fed systems, creating alkaline water way back in 1984, and have continued to lead the market in research and development, setting the benchmark for all other brands to follow. Please go to my webpage, PeteEvans.com, to learn more and to receive your special discount from my link on the products page. You're going to love it. Craig, thanks so much for joining us. How are you, brother? Yeah, good to be with you, Pete. I'm down here in my... uh parliamentary office down in Canberra sort of thing so it's uh, uh I don't know whether I actually enjoy getting back down here or not sort of thing but uh the parliamentary fight starts again tomorrow so today is not a sitting day uh, before I get down early and get all prepared for the rest of the week. What do you mean by parliamentary fight? Explain that to us. Well look it's uh it is it's it's a battle of ideas and that's what being a, a member of parliament is it's 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 a battle of ideas and it's about taking what we believe and what are best, what we believe that are best for our constituents in our local area and coming to Canberra and fighting and arguing for those cases. And that's all that I've been uh, doing ever since uh, I've been elected. And it's not a matter of trying to be, sometimes everyone wants to be popular down here and, uh, you know, appeal to what the, uh, you know, the ABC and all the media wants you to do and sort of follow all the popular lines. Well, that's not your job down here. Your job is if you think that something is wrong and even if it's a bit controversial and even if everyone disagrees with you like there's times i've stood up and everyone has disagreed with me in the party room but you've got to stick to your guns and you've got to argue your case and that's that's how you have it you you get that's how we've achieved so much as a society today is because we've had that open and free debate that contest of ideas so if i say something that's wrong the way to it's not to censor me or to, it's, it's to argue my ideas out and show that I'm wrong. That's how, that's how we've achieved everything, every great thing. So remember, every single thing we do today, someone, everything that, you know, every single achievement that's been made in society and civilization, someone has said, hang on a minute, the way we are doing things, I think there's actually a better way and the way we're doing things is wrong. And that's how we progress. When you shut those people down, your society stagnates, your civilization stagnates. And that's why I'm also such a, a passionate defender uh, of free speech and this freedom of ideas that we get down and we debate stuff between each other. Take us back in time, Craig. And, and firstly, thank you for what you, just, what you just said. But take us back in time to a young Craig Kelly. And did you have any aspirations of being in politics 
from a young age. And if not, how did it, how did it develop for you? Yeah, sure. I, I grew up in uh, Peakhurst, uh, you know, a bit of a probably a, a middle-class suburb down in the, the south of Sydney. And uh, we lived opposite what was the people that know the area was the old Gannon's Park tip sort of thing. So we were basically right opposite the rubbish tip. And I remember my mum telling me the story when she first moved in. She moved into the house on the first night. She said, these big bush rats came from the tip in the house. And she said, get me out of here, get me out of here. But she, we stuck on it. And look, at uh, eventually the tip closed down. They turned it onto parkland. And uh, we had a great uh, childhood, a, a big front yard with all the neighbours. We'd play cricket in the summer until it was too dark to see the ball. And we'd play uh, football in the winter sort of thing. And uh, we had a, had a, we would run through the bush and we would uh, light fires and chop down trees. And we had a we had a great, uh, great childhood there. We went to the local... A primary school, a local state high school, PQS high school. But I think, look, I, I've always had an interest in, uh, in politics and it's always been something. But I, I sort of got uh, passionate about it probably in the early 2000s. My interest came about it through uh, competition law, uh, what we call the Old Trade Practices Act. And I just thought we had a lot of these concepts completely and utterly wrong. So I joined uh, one of the small business groups. Uh, it was called COSBO, which is the Council of small business organisations and went down there because, look, you know, I want to try and argue the case and lobby the cause. And I sort of turned up to look, you know, if I can, if I can lick the stamps, put the stamps on the envelopes or address, address the envelopes and help, I'm happy to do that. But I found a lot of these guys were more interested in the, uh, the meeting procedure than what actually the facts, what actually you did during the meeting. You know, so it was important all the minutes were lined out and that was all, all that had priority and making sure, you know, the, 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 the afternoon tea arrived on time and actually getting in and fighting the case. And at the time, what we were arguing for uh, from the small business groups was actually probably a little bit contrary to what the, uh, the Liberal Party's position was. And I said, look, guys, you've got to get in and argue this with the Howard government. I said, you know, I think as much as you know, I was a supporter of the Howard government, I think there's a few things that they haven't quite got right, and this is one area. And that's sort of what really uh, uh, got me involved. And then after... Um, I think it was the 2007 election when the, the Liberal Party lost. Um, I thought one of the big reasons that they lost is a lot of traditional small business support had drifted away from the Liberal Party. I thought that was the reason they lost. And I remember then going to see my uh, local member, then it was Dana Vale, and said, you know, Dana, I, I met her a couple of times, but I thought, I believe the reason the Liberal Party lost is you've lost your way with small business. You've got to get back to that small business community. Yeah, and, and sort of... Um, she said, oh, that's, she listened, she listened. Then she said, when she closed the door and she said, Craig, I've got a, a secret to tell me. She said, she said, I'm not running at the next election. She says, why don't you join the party and, and, and run for us? I thought, oh, yeah, you know, you know, she must be very impressed with me. I didn't realise at the time they'd asked another thousand people and all of them had said no. Because at that time, the, the margin in the city of Hughes was only 2%. And Dana was very popular as a local member. Um, a lot of people, you know, voted for, uh, at the time we had Labor seats, Labor controlled the local council in the Southern Shire, and all the seats that made up my electorate were all Labor seats underneath me at the state government level. And there was a boundary change coming up which would have taken the margin back to basically zero. Kevin Rudd was flying at that time high in the polls and was like almost like a, uh, uh, almost like a godlike figure that was never going to be beaten. Like I think the two-party preferred polls at the time, I think Kevin was on about... 64% to 36%. It was like the biggest margin that ever been. So no one wanted to run for the... So I thought, oh, okay, I'll join the, I'll join the Liberal Party. And I, 
I sort of filled the forms out and put, hang on, maybe this is sort of some sort of rouse to get me to pay like a hundred bucks membership fee for the party sort of thing. But so look, it, it turned out um, uh, I joined the party. I was successful in the pre-selection process. That was in, I ran in 2010 and it was one of the most marginal seats in the country. Uh, it was 0.5% when I ran. And the first betting market that came out had the, the Labor guy favourites sort of things. So I thought, oh, I really need to get stuck in here. But look, I thought that um, I had enough local connections. Like I'd grown up in the area. Uh, you know, I'd worked in the area. Um, I'd played, you know, I had my brothers and sisters and family had all lived in the area. A lot of people at that stage, although I grew up in Pecos, we'd moved south across the river to places like Illawong and Menai and uh, Alfred's Point. Uh, you know, and Barden Regional, these suburbs, that was where it's sort of my generation that where we moved further out of the city went to. So there were so many people I knew. So I was confident that I'd, I'd, I'd give it a good shot and uh, had a good win in 2010. I won again in 2013, 16 uh, and 19. So so I'm still here. You know, I've got the margin out to, to 10%. So I must be I must be doing something right along the way. So what is your intention then as a politician? You, you touched on it before going into battle but what is it that you do for your electorate if that's the correct terminology yeah it's look it's difficult as a federal member of parliament um you are dealing with federal issues so a lot of the issues that you deal with they affect your electorate directly but they also affect the, the rest of the country is where if you're on a local council for example you're dealing with everything you deal with is 100 percent of local issue it's about a local park or a local swimming pool or a local road or the garbage collection if you're a state member of parliament, uh, most of the things that you are doing are confined to state issues, which again are predominantly in your local electorate. But as a federal member of parliament, you're dealing with a taxation policy, uh, international relations, um, all those type of things, which yes, they affect your electorate, but they also affect more broadly the entire nation. So, look, all you want to, the ultimate goal is in this job, and I see, and what is everyone's responsibility is you've got to try and make sure we've got the best policies in place that we can for the nation so that we keep making the Australian nation better. So whenever our time comes as parliamentarians or politicians or time to retire, we can look back and say, well, the country's in a better place and a better position now than when I first started. And it's got more opportunities for young people to do whatever they want to in life. That's got to be the, the ultimate goal now. Then the question is, everyone has different ideas, and that's why it becomes a contest of ideas. I think everyone ultimately wants the same thing. But the question is, how do you get there and what, what policies do you implement? So currently, where are you sitting? You said you're in Canberra. So explain your, your okay. title. Okay. Um, so I'm a member of the government, right? Okay. Um, and so as a member of the government, uh, you are considered sort of like on the Liberal Party. So I'm a member of the Liberal Party in New South Wales. The seat I represent is the seat of Hughes, which is sort of the part of the Sutherland Shire and over in the Wattle Grove, Holsworthy, Hammondville area, that part of the Liverpool district. So that's about 120,000 people that actually vote in that electorate. So that's the area that I represent in Canberra as a member of the Liberal Party. So I'm actually a backbencher on the Liberal Party. Now, now people say, oh, you're only a, a, a backbencher. But one of the, the beauties is that as a backbencher, you are free to talk on all subjects. So if you say, for example, if you're Minister for Defence, you're only able to speak publicly on issues directly related to your portfolio. If you're the Minister for uh, Education, 
again, publicly, you're not meant to speak outside your portfolio. But as a backbencher, you can speak on all issues, all portfolios, uh, which is a great freedom uh, that we have. And we've got to make sure that we exercise that freedom to our maximum potential. So explain to me how, where a senator fits into this jigsaw sure. puzzle, if you don't mind. Okay, okay. Yeah, so we've got the two houses. of So in federal parliament, there's the two houses. There's the House of Representatives and the Senate. The House of Representatives uh, is divided up around about 100,000 people in each electorate, of voters in each electorate. It's sort of evenly distributed across each of the states, with the exception of Tasmania, but that's a, that's a special case. So... Um, in New South Wales, I think it's now 47 members of the House of Reps that we have. We used to have 48, but because of population changes and recently Western Australia, the population went up. So they gained one seat at New South Wales expense in a previous redistribution. Now, I understand Western Australian population relative to New South Wales and Victoria has gone down a bit. So they keep changing the, um, the boundaries and they keep changing the allocation of House of Representative seats around the nation. So it's 47 uh, seats in New South Wales out of 150. In the Senate, which is the other chamber down here, uh, which is the equivalent of the House of Lords, we, we sort of joke that you know, they're the, we call them the upper house, the upper class, the, the House of Lords sort of thing, where each state gets 12 representatives, except the ACT gets two and the Northern Territory gets two. And they get voted six at a time every election. And there's, so, again, for New South Wales, there'll be 12 senators, uh, sorry, six senators from, sorry, 12 senators, six get elected at each time from New South Wales. And they, so for legislation to be passed in the country, it's got to be passed in both houses of parliament, the lower house and the upper house. Now, the coalition, uh, as we are with Scott Morrison as prime minister, we have the numbers in the lower house and that's how the prime minister is decided. So uh, as long as all the members of the coalition of the government, which is the Liberal Party and the National Party, vote for a particular piece of legislation, that gets passed in the lower house, the House of Representatives. Then it goes to the Senate. Now, in the Senate, the government doesn't have the numbers. So the, the balance of power is held by, uh, you know, the likes of uh, there's One Nation and there's a mob called Centre Alliance, uh, which, which a few senators from South Australia, uh, and the Greens. So you, often a lot of horse trading is done in the Senate to try and get enough of those cross, what they call them cross, cross bench senators to vote with the government to get the legislation through. Is it a game? Oh, look, it's um, at, at times down here it can be theatre. What you see uh, on TV. Sorry, but, sorry, but, um, at times. What you see in question time uh, is theatre. Um, it's done for the cameras. And question time, uh, that's when everyone is inside the chamber, goes from like two o'clock to about quarter past three every day. And that's what they show the highlights of the um, highlights on the, on the television. But Parliament sits basically from that's at 9.30 in the morning until eight o'clock at night. So there's a lot of things that you don't see, a lot of debate that happens in Parliament. But also a lot of the actual policy decision-making is sort of done in the back rooms and the corridors is where people sit down and discuss ideas. Um, so, look, at, at times, at times it, it, it is a game, but it's also very, very serious business. Um, what we do affects people's lives. Uh, if we get things wrong, we cause people's death. Um, you know, it, where we spend money 
uh, and borrow money. We create uh, billions of dollars of debt for future generations to pay off. So that means that our kids and grandkids are going to have a lower standard of living because a government here has recklessly spent money and had to borrow and basically put it, basically it's when you borrow money, you're effectively putting on the credit card. So look, it's, the times you can say this again, but this is, this is really, this is, this is really serious business and it really affects uh, people's lives, especially when we get it wrong. It is serious and you have definitely become quite prominent over the last 10 months since coronavirus has entered our um, vocabulary for mm. as, a, as a household word. And I've seen you challenge and mm. go into fight for, uh, I don't want to put any words in your mouth, but who are you fighting for and why does it seem that you were one of the few people in Parliament that is voicing your concerns? I'll just hand it over to you because I'm... Okay. People say, who are you fighting for? And I get comments on social media, oh, you must have shares in one of these uh, drug companies or something. So hang on a minute. I'm talking about uh, two uh, medical treatments that are off patent. So that means uh, there's no monopoly. No one has a monopoly uh, to them. Uh, so when a drug is developed, uh, and you know, so just going through that to explain what that means, to get a new drug developed on the market costs millions of dollars of investment. You've got to go through all the trials and you've got to have all the researchers. And they can spend hundreds of millions of dollars researching a new drug. And there's no guarantee that that drug will ever get to market. So a lot of the money on experimentation that the drug companies do is just so it's not really wasted because even though when you learn something doesn't work, you still learn something. But there's so much money that goes into researching those drugs. Now, so when you come up, a, a drug company comes up with something new, they get basically monopoly rights through our patent uh, intellectual property laws. They get 20 years basically to, and they're the only people that can sell that drug. And they can basically put whatever price that they want onto it. And that's people are, but that's I think that's fair enough in a way because you've got to you've got to be able to attract the investment up front to do that. Right? Otherwise, if you say, "Oh, sorry, you've got to give this," you've done you, know, you spent five hundred million dollars developing this drug, and now you've got to give it away. Well, that might be great for that drug, but who's going to spend another five hundred million dollars, uh, you know, discovering drugs that are going to be discovered in the next 10, 20, 30, 40 years? to make lives better for you know, our kids and our grandkids unless there's that incentive there. So the incentive's got to be there. And the incentive is that monopoly right that you can, no one can copy what you've created. Now, after that 20-year period comes up, it goes well, off patent. And that means anyone can make it. So when you talk about uh, drugs like ivermectin, the, co the cost of manufacturing the tablets, a sense, right? All the, all the um, yeah, the real cost in the drugs is not the actual manufacturing of them. It's all the research and development that goes behind them. So that's why you see when drugs come off patent, they crash down in price. So there's no, so when you're so promoting off patent drugs, there's no money in these things and anyone can come and start up and make them. So, so that's not the reason that's, I just want to dismiss that reason. The reason is I want to make sure that um, if it's my mum or other elderly relatives that I have, if they get sick and they come down with coronavirus, I want to make sure that they are entitled to the best 
possible medical treatment. Now, at the moment, what's happened, and this is why I, I object to it, we've had the government come in and basically where there's a normal right between a doctor and a patient, that you can sit down with your doctor and remember there's no approved early treatment cure. Right? Now, if my doctor says, look, uh, Craig, uh, I've done the research, I've looked at it, I've done the studies, I've listened to the experts, uh, my recommendation is to treat your uh, mum with these particular drugs. Right? And you sit down, and these are the risks, this is what the risk factor is, and this is what the benefits are. I'm weighing it up, I think this is a good idea. Well, I'm told to say, thanks, doc, and then I get a second opinion. Or I'm told to say, okay, I trust your judgment. But what's happened? That bond, that's, that sanctity between the doctor and patient relationship, government has come and interfered in that. And government says, well, we don't care what you think as an individual doctor or an ex expert in this field. We as big government know better, and you are not allowed to prescribe hydroxychloroquine, right? which is, remember, which is a lawfully available, lawfully otherwise available drug. And you're not allowed to prescribe what they call off-label, which is for a treatment outside what all the uh, officially recommended for. You're not allowed to do that. And if you want to prescribe ivermectin, well, we're going to come down on you like a ton of bricks. Uh, you're not allowed to talk about it. We've got official recommendations against it to scare all the doctors off. Now, that's what I just feel in principle is wrong. That should, in a, in a free democratic society, that decision should be between myself and my doctor. There shouldn't be someone second guessing that decision from some office and ivory tower down here in Canberra. And if they are going to do that, they should have the onus of proof. They should be able to prove one, that it definitely doesn't work, and two, that if there is a slight potential that it might work, that the risks far, far outweigh the potential benefits. And they can't do that. They simply cannot do that. And I just think this, this is wrong. I think you know, Australian citizens, and I offer my constituents, for every other Australian, should have the right to access a particular medical treatment without some government bureaucrat in an ivory tower telling them they can't. And that's, that's one of the reasons I'm against it. I just want to make sure, and when I look around what the, the cost of everything is, not only the deaths, so we've, we've had a close to 1,000 Australians die here without with being denied access to a medical treatment. Right? Now, we've got there's studies from all around the world, and there's dozens of these studies that show if you are given a hydroxychloroquine, combined with zinc and an antibiotic early, you can have perhaps an 80% reduction in hospitalisation and deaths. It's the same for ivermectin, right? But we've had those thousand, close to 900 and something people have died in Australia without having that option. And I just think this is appalling. I just think as a, as a member, as an elected government official to stand by and to see people, Australian citizens, denied access to a drug and just, oh, well, I'm going to be quiet because the media might attack me. I just think this is just appalling. And, and, and as to the conduct of the media in this, it has been, the mainstream media, has been an absolute bloody disgrace. The evidence on this is overwhelming. And they say, oh, Craig Kelly said, you're posting misinformation. Now, anyone that follows my Facebook page will see what I post are peer-reviewed studies. So I post a study published in the American Journal of Medicine it's peer-reviewed, 
It's got like a dozen authors, including a guy like Professor Peter McCullough, one of the most respected medical uh, professors in the US. He writes a paper. I post the details of that on my Facebook page. And the media says, oh, that's misinformation. I, I, I post an interview with a doctor called Brian Tyson. You know, Dr. Tyson works out of California. He's treated over 3,000 COVID patients. And he treats them with his protocol, hydroxychloroquine, ivermectin, and zinc. He treats them early. Now, I've actually sought him out, and I've actually spoken to him on the phone. And said, look, can you explain to me what you're doing? Can you explain to me how this works, why it works, why you are using it? And he goes through all the details with me. Right? And his success. His record is there. He said out of 3,000 patients, he's had two or three deaths. Now, if he was having, on the average, he'd have around 100 dead patients. He said, I can tell you. He said, I am saving lives. Now, so I post, um, so I post a, an interview that Dr. Tyson's done with the media. It's not my opinion. This is Dr. Brian Tyson, a medical specialist, working on the front lines, treating sick COVID patients every day, and the ABC puts out, oh, oh, this is misinformation. They don't actually say this, this is what, if they said, you said X, Y, and Z, and we believe that is wrong and misinformation, and these are the reasons why, you'd have something to argue about. But they never actually say what, they never actually pin it down or specify. They say, oh, it's misinformation, misinformation, conspiracy theories. What I am doing is referencing peer-reviewed science, published medical evidence, and the opinions of some of the most respected and highest credentialed prof professors and qualified people from around the world. And yet, because the media sort of like is, uh, I would say, asleep at the wheel and has some preconditions, and because also with this, because uh, former President Trump said hydroxychloroquine was effective, the media went out to, to, to demonise it and not only to show it was ineffective, but to show it was dangerous, and anything that was contrary, any evidence that was contrary, they just dismissed. In the meantime, we've got like 2 million people dead around the world. It's, it's been, I think, one of the darkest chapters, when this is finally over, will be one of the darkest chapters of the media, not only in Australia, but in all Western countries for their failure to actually do their research and look at the evidence. Well, thank you for fighting for us and for presenting the evidence. There's a few different directions I want to go. You said this will be a dark day in a chapter of Australian history, if not global history. The media, why are they so hell-bent on suppressing the information and not addressing the evidence mm. and the facts, in, in your opinion, not just the ABC, but because yeah. it seems like if... If Channel 9, Channel 7, ABC, SBS, Channel 10, the mainstream media outlets in Australia, mm -hmm. why are they so invested in this? Look, I think firstly there was um, the fact that President Trump mentioned hydroxychloroquine to start with. That was one of the reasons why. Because a lot of the media were very anti-Trump. So it became a, a common theme. They had to show that uh, hydroxychloroquine was not only didn't work, but it was dangerous, and therefore Trump was mad and dangerous. So they had, um, uh, there was an ideological bias on this. Okay? Then remember you had back in uh, July of last year, 
you had a study published in the Lancet that was done by a company called Surgisphere. And this, remember, to get the Lancet is probably the most prestigious medical journal. And it basically said hydroxychloroquine didn't work. And if you took it, you're more likely to die than otherwise were. And this was like a tens of thousands of people, 100,000 people in the study. And this was basically like so definitive that there was a line under it and all the media reported the study. Now, it turned out that that study was actually fraud. The guy that actually wrote the study just simply concocted the data himself. And the Lancet basically withdrew the study. Like this was several weeks after the study had been published. They withdrew the study. And the Lancet, the headlines are looking at, this is, this is fraud. We've been, we're, we're a victim of fraud. Now, this should have been investigated by the, by the police. But the media, so there was all this massive coverage about how it didn't work and here the evidence was. And then there's so like this tiny little bit of coverage about how it was a fraudulent study. So all the media went down that track. And then there was another study that was done on hydroxychloroquine where what they actually did, they, and remember the, the doctors that argue for this, the doctors and medical professionals, they're an issue. It only works if you give it early. Like any disease, uh, if you let the disease go for too long a period of time, no treatment works. So doctors say every day is vital. You've got to give it within the first five days and you've got to combine it with zinc and you've got to combine it with an antibody. So they're the three things that they say. Now, all these studies were done that gave it to sick people in hospital. And probably the largest study was done was one was done by Oxford that ran a study. And they actually, uh, firstly, they didn't start the procedures on hydroxychloroquine uh, until it was an average of nine days. So remember, the doctors say there's a five-day window from the time you get in, the time you first show your symptoms, and that five days, that's the window we've got to get you the treatment. Right? So this study didn't start the treatment until the average of nine days. And then they gave them what was six times the actual recommended dose. So they overdosed these sick people very sick people in hospital late, and they said, "Oh, look, look! More people have died that more people have died that we gave this uh, big dose to than uh, than survived." It was pretty much statistically similar. At least they killed four hundred people in the trial. It was the most disgraceful medical um, negligence and malpractice that you could ever see. But the results were published that said hydroxychloroquine oh, is actually dangerous, and they people were running around holding the study up as the evidence to show that President Trump was an idiot and was promoting something that was dangerous. But yet, when the studies have been done, where they've actually given it to people early, there's now 26 studies. And 100% of those studies, the 26 studies where the treatment's been given early, all shots highly successful. Now, to get 26 out of 26 is something like you're getting into the ratio of hundreds of millions to one as, as a chance, as a random chance. You're throwing a coin up in the air and every time it comes down, you get 26 heads in a row. It's an impossibility. But there have been 26 published studies on the effectiveness of hydroxychloroquine where it's given early. And every single one has come up ahead and shown its, shown its effective treatment. So you've got, you've got that reason. Um, also, too, I think a lot of the people in the media are now realise that what they've actually done, they've actually demonised a treatment. And by doing so, they've prevented people getting access to a medicine. And if they're wrong, they've got the blood of hundreds of thousands of people on their hands. And for that, you don't want to admit that you've made that mistake. 
you know, we've got around the world over 2 million people who have died. Uh, you know, now there's an argument with or from coronavirus, but in the year, there's no doubt that it's caused a, a significant amount of deaths. And all these people have been denied access to these treatments because the media has said they don't work. Now, for the media to go back and go, oh, hang on a minute, we actually got that wrong. Well, hang on, you got it wrong and you mean all these people have died without having the option of the treatment? Uh, how the hell did you get it wrong? So I think that's also got um, a bit of an aspect to it. And the other point is that um, under the US uh, regulations, if you're getting emergency authorization for a, a new medical treatment, which the vaccines are, you can't get emergency authorization if there's a recognized approved treatment. So if they had a said, for example, ivermectin hydroxychloroquine was an effective treatment for coronavirus, what that would have meant that the vaccines had to go through a much longer approval process and the time would have blown out. And it could have been a couple of years uh, before those vaccines were available if it had to go through the normal process. But by saying there's nothing that works, it allows for uh, emergency authorization where you can shortcut uh, some of all the normal approvals that you go through for a new drug. Now, there may have been some, uh, you know, sort of what you call described as noble cause corruption where people thought that, you know, I'm actually doing the right thing by saying these drugs don't work because the vaccine is so important to mankind. Um, we can't hold it up. We've got to rush it through. Therefore, let's just put these hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin on the side. You know, uh, we'll just ignore the evidence. I think that's also um, had something to do with it. So, and then it's become definitely a bit of groupthink in the media. So the media say that uh, the ABC is the worst. They say, oh, Craig Kelly uh, has posted all this misinformation on his page. Isn't that terrible? And then they want to go and attack, say, the Prime Minister, or they've also the New South Wales Premier, and say, will you condemn Craig Kelly for his misinformation? So it becomes an attack line in the media to try and do a political attack you know, upon my more senior politicians than myself. Say, so you should condemn him. So hang on, what exactly has he said? Oh, he's been posting misinformation. I said, so hang on, what? tell me, give me an example of what this misinformation is. And they can't. So it's become almost like a, a, a slander and like an urban myth uh, in the media that they all repeat groupthink without actually reading what I've actually been posting and saying. I think I can relate to that, Craig. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I mean. That's what I mean. It's called the pylon, Pete. Right? Well, it's interesting. <laughs> For so many years when I worked in the mainstream media, I was yeah. attacked... Well, it was interesting. They used me as a tool or as a target for attacking. The other, the other networks saw me as a target to hurt yes. the network I was working with, just similar yes, to your... Yes. I was yeah. like, this is interesting. This actually has nothing to do with me or what I'm saying. This is yeah. only to attack the competitor in their That's industry. Right. And because the show that I appeared on was the number one show on the number one network yes, at the particular yes. point in time, let's attack whatever we can to try to hurt that network so that the advertisers maybe get a little bit more scared and maybe we'll yes. hurt their ratings because the, we, we control the media ourselves. We can put it yeah. out on a current affair or this. And when you witness it, you realise that it's actually got nothing to do with you or what you're saying. 
because that's right. They never address the issue of of what yeah. you've shared, the message. And yeah. but remember, I mean, this is in the, the kindest way. And your TV shows and your ratings are, are highly valuable commodities. When we're talking about medical treatments, we're talking about people's life and death. I, 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 there, I, now there is no doubt that people have died uh, because they've been denied access to these drugs. And, and, and what is worse, that there's also no doubt that the World Health Organization very soon will, will basically have ivermectin as a treatment, or fully authorised as a treatment. But because of what the ABC has said, people now are going to think that, oh, ivermectin, that's, that's for head lice. And, and people get locked into their positions. Often uh, they, they, get, they, they, they sort of think, take a position. It's very hard to, to disabuse someone of a, a position that they've had. It's like they almost as they're barracking for a football team. You know? So oh, this is my side of politics. And, the ABC's told me this doesn't work, and they told me it's it's weird and wacky. It doesn't work. Now, what's going to happen when the World Health Organization eventually, and it, I think it'll be weeks away now, until they actually recommend this as a treatment, because the evidence is overwhelming. The senior doctor that's looking at it has basically said, get ready, it's coming. You have all these people in Australia that will think, well, hang on, this is actually some crazy head loss treatment. This is some crazy treatment. I may not take it. So, so by actually attacking me and calling it misinformation, all these media outlets, they are the ones peddling medical misinformation. They are the ones misleading the Australian public. And they are the ones potentially putting lives at risk because there's going to be someone out there that we, we've got no idea what's going to happen in the future uh, with COVID. There's new strains being reported. We've got no guarantees of, of how we're going to you know, continue to be able to keep our, our, our international borders closed in Australia. Australians are going to want to travel over, still travel overseas. Australians are going to be exposed to the virus when they go overseas. We, we can't stay locked down in our country uh, forever. There's no doubt there's going to be people in the future. They're going to get sick with COVID. The doctor's going to say, well, I've got this ivermectin treatment. And they're going to say, well, I listened to the ABC, and the ABC told me this was a weird and wacky treatment used for scabies. I don't think I should take it. So it's, 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 it's the media that are actually acting irresponsibly, recklessly, and dangerously. Well, instead of saying, well, Craig Kelly's posted this, and that's an alternate view, but by categorically saying it's misinformation and weird and wacky, they are dangerously putting lives at risk in the future. Well, I 100% I agree with you. It's very serious, and, and we'll just we'll go back quite a few years when I started promoting a paleo approach or a ketogenic approach mm -hmm. or just healthy living. And I question the dietary guidelines for this country and the, and the association that the dietary Dietitians Association of Australia had with multinational food corporations and their, their conflicts of interest, as well as the Heart Foundation and, and others. And the media, well, the Dietitians Association of Australia issued press releases to say that what I was talking about was dangerous. The head of the Australian Medical Association came out to say that I'm a dangerous person to... Mm the Australian population. And it was interesting. So over the last nearly 10 years of promoting this, every single media person that has asked me to do an interview about this, I have suggested to them, why don't you talk to the doctors that are using this yeah, as yeah. one of their tools in their toolkit, dietary mm. approach, one of their tools, medical doctors, 
esteemed medical doctors, scientists, mm -hmm. researchers, they would be very happily happy to talk to you about their clients and their patients and the research and, mm -hmm. and the cutting edge research that's happening. Over the years that I offered that to every single journalist that wanted an interview about my crazy diet, mm. guess how many said we would yeah, love to talk to the doctor? A duck egg, yeah, duck egg I'd say. Yeah, duck egg, yeah, which is zero for anybody listening from overseas and yeah. doesn't understand. But yeah, no, nothing, zero. And this was serious. This is serious. I mean, we've proven through this dietary approach that nine out of 10 people, if not more, can reverse type two diabetes in a matter of six months, if not earlier. And with close to 2 million people in Australia, nearly 10% of the population that have a form of type two diabetes or prediabetes, wouldn't it make sense that this would be front page news that we can help people get off their medication, improve even, their quality of life even, and extend even, life? I don't know whether, whether you're right. I'm not making any judgments about whether you're right or wrong. So. But it's got to be debated, right? Now, let's just say, let's just say that you are 100% wrong on this and the Dietitians Association, whatever they say, is correct. Right? The best way for them to prove themselves correct is to debate your ideas and debunk them. And so here are the facts that shows Pete is wrong, right? And this is why you should, this is why you should believe us rather than Pete. That's the way you go about, that's the way our society is developed. You've got to have the debate, you've got to have the argument, right? And, and it's, that, it's the clash of the bad idea and the good idea. You've got to get them together, you've, they've got to clash together, is what develops the truth. When you just say, this side here is wrong and we want them censored, you don't get the truth. You don't, you don't get the truth in society. And even the people that hold those ideas, you've got to be able to have your ideas challenged. Because it doesn't matter how you, I often say, have a sign on my door, argue with me. Because I want my staff, my staff to work with me. I said, I don't want you to come in and say, oh, yes, Craig, you're right. That's a really good idea. You know, uh, uh, that, doesn't, I said, that doesn't help me. I want you to tell me what I've got wrong. I want you to come up with some argument or some alternate perspective that I haven't thought about. I don't care whether you, you it doesn't matter. There's nothing wrong. There's nothing wrong about it if you're wrong. But you've got to challenge me with those ideas because even if you're wrong, it gives me even a sharper look at what the truth is. I didn't actually consider that idea. And now I know I'm right. That's, that, that idea is wrong. And that allows me to sharpen my argument to blunt that bad idea. That's how you go about things. This, this idea we've sort of developed in society that people should be censored and cancelled, I think is, is very, very dangerous. Because who's the one that decides what is information and what is truth, unless you can have a fair, fair income debate. Mm, I agree, mate. I really agree with you. Now, I've got a question for you. It's a tricky one, possibly, for you, and I don't want to put you on the spot, but no, no. You're, you're part of the Liberal Party and the Prime Minister mm -hmm. is the leader of the Liberal Party. Yeah. So with the information that you share, such as ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine yes. and the peer-reviewed scientific evidence that keeps coming yeah. out to support this where how how do you present that to your political party all the way up to the top and mm -hmm. and, and and then the further question is because this is the one that really challenges my my thoughts yes. mm -hmm. because i like to think the best of people 
you know, I don't want to be a conspiratorial theorist and, and believe that people are acting not for the betterment of the, our fellow human beings. But when I see somebody, that, let's take Australia for an example, Scott Morrison, where they've done billion dollar investments into vaccine manufacturing companies, and these manufacturing companies have been fined in excess of a billion dollars for mm. basically criminal behavior. Mm. It, it's like, why isn't any media or journalist questioning this, just that relationship between the Australian government that is using the taxpayer's money to work with what I would call an illegal or criminal organization mm for something that has been rushed through when some, when you yourself, Craig Kelly are offering maybe an alternative mm. or something else to add. Yeah. So how does this work and how do you keep level-headed in this or don't you? Yeah, just, just to clarify, um, one of the things I've posted is a, uh, the opinion of Emeritus Professor Robert Clancy. Now, this is a gentleman that I would say would be our most highest credentialed immunologist, immunologist in our country. You know? He's an emeritus professor at Newcastle University. He actually has won an Order of Australia for services to immunology and medicine. You know? um, he's on the National Academy of Science expert uh, data list. And he has written absolutely clearly, he, he says, I've got the quote, I'd just like to, to read it out because this is absolutely a crucial quote, but I'll come back to the question. It says he, um, he said, from uncertain beginnings, an impressive data has more recently been accumulated that strongly supports the use of hydroxychloroquine and or ivermectin. He continued, this is a direct quote, their use in concert with vaccines can no longer be denied and is the only science-based option. So arguing for uh, that these treatments, and remember doctors should have the option to use them, is not arguing for or against the vaccines. It's in Professor Clancy's own, word, own words that these can be used in concert with the vaccines. Now, the whole vaccines is a whole another, another debate, but I'm concentrating on here are two treatments that the evidence shows are effective. We've got experts like Professor Clancy that say that they're effective. It should be available to the Australian public. So that's that's just for you. Now, when it comes to the um, the Prime Minister, one of the great things about uh, uh, the Liberal Party is that as a backbencher, we've got freedom to disagree uh, with the party. We've got a freedom to uh, what they call cross the floor, which is to vote against um, legislation uh, that the party puts up. That's a freedom that you have. If you're a member of the Cabinet, and you want to do that, you have to resign from the cabinet and go to the back bench. And different uh, people have done that over the years. Yeah. Now, there's nothing that I'm arguing here or nothing I'm putting evidence here that's against any of our, what I'd say, party policies. In fact, I would argue that this is, that we have a document about what we believe is, is the Liberal Party. And one of the things that says and we believe is we believe in individual freedom and small government. Well, individual freedom and small government to have a, a bureaucratic system that interferes with the doctor-patient relationship and overrides the rights of your doctor, that is absolutely contrary to those policies. So I believe I'm arguing this 
from a fundamental principle that is a core belief of the party that I belong to. Now, when it comes to the um, how do I argue this with inside the party, um, firstly, we have a Minister for Health, uh, and I'm, that's Mr Greg Hunt. Uh, Greg and myself, uh, I've known Greg for now over a decade. Uh, I think Greg's a great guy, uh, very smart. You think he's doing a, 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 in a very difficult portfolio, he's doing a good job. But the problem that you've got is you've got this bureaucracy. And as a health minister, you're not a medical... Uh, you've got all these people around you that actually have medical degrees. And they're telling you one thing, and, and there's this whole structure that flow, all the information flows through these people. So, so as, as a minister, it, it's very hard to go and argue against what your department is telling you. So my whole beef in this has been with some of these health bureaucrats and what they've actually been telling our leaders. Now, let me, I'll give you one example. We've got a group called the COVID National Evidence Task Force, and their job is to prevent, present the evidence to the government about what, uh, to, to look at the studies and to make their minds up about what, you know, recommendations for or against particular treatments. Now, they had a recommendation against ivermectin now for months. And they had up on their website, we're going to review, have a, they do like almost like a fortnightly review. The latest fortnightly review they would put up would be the 29th of January. And, I, and I'd been critical before because they'd only looked at, if you go to what their recommendation against ivermectin is based upon, it's just three studies. Now, at the time, there's actually over like 27 studies at the time. When they put up, they'd, so they looked at three out of 27. I thought, oh, look, okay, um, that's not really acceptable, but you're doing that, um, you're doing another review on the 29th. You put that up, you look at all the other studies, and you'll change your position as they have in the United States, where their National Institute of Health has gone from a negative recommendation for ivermectin to a neutral recommendation. They haven't gone all the way and recommended for it, but that's a, that's a big step that they did. So I thought, look, at least, um, that this body will have to look at all these other studies and come up and change their recommendations. If you look at them, there's no other, there's simply no other option. Anyhow, I looked at it yesterday and they've still got, they've only looked at three studies. There's now 36. So there's 36 international studies on how effective ivermectin is for treating people. One is a prophylaxis, that's you take it before that prevents you getting uh, uh, sick. You take it early or you take it late. There's now 36 studies. All those 36 studies, 100% of them show it's effective. Right? And you go to the, the, our, our medical bureaucrats that are advising the government and they say, our decision is based upon a review of three studies. You blokes have got to be kidding me. You're seriously. You've got to be kidding To look at three, like what, it, it's not as though there's a, this is something, oh, we can go and have four months now. Four weeks holiday and have a review and I'll get around to it in a couple of weeks. We're facing a, a, an international and global emergency and these people that the government is relying upon haven't even looked at 10% of the evidence. So what do you and make of what, what do you make of these people and what is their dare I say the word agenda? Well, I, I, you know I I don't know uh, what's 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 going on here, but it's it's just it's unacceptable. It should be it's got to be called out. And the reason, if you look at the evidence, one of the most one of the studies that I found was just remarkable. 
And this is peer-reviewed stuff. This is not just sort of some, you know, some bloke making it up in his back garage or some you know, random doctor's thoughts. There was a study out of Argentina, Professor Hector Cavallo and another professor, I think his name was Rishk. Um, I can't remember his first name. So there was three professors that did this study in Argentina. And what they did, they said, look, we think that ivermectin could be uh, effective as a treatment in our hospitals to prevent healthcare workers from getting sick. So they had 1,200, around about 1,200 healthcare workers, doctors, nurses, uh, orderlies, janitors, all the people that are working in the hospital. And they divided them into one group. They had 788 people. And they said, look, this lot will give you uh, a treatment of ivermectin. It was once a week. And it might have been two treatments on the first days. But we'll give you ivermectin as a prophylaxis. But we think that might help you prevent getting catching coronavirus. The other group was about 420-odd. They said, you will just go through your normal procedure. You'll wear all your uh, protective equipment, all your glasses and your goggles and all the things, right? But you won't, you'll get it. You won't take the ivermectin. Now, hospitals in Argentina, imagine they don't have the wealth that we have here in Australia. Uh, they've, they've been overcrowded. They probably don't have the 100% the protection equipment that uh, you know, is available. Uh, coronavirus is rife. People are coming into hospitals all the time. The group that they didn't give ivermectin to 58% of them came down with COVID. So over a three-month period, 58%, so it was like 420 or something, 200-odd. So your chances were, were greater than 50% as a, someone working in a hospital, in those four hospitals, that you were going to catch COVID. Right? The group they gave ivermectin to was 788 people. Same hospitals, same jobs. Also, the difference was that they took ivermectin. You know how many got infected with coronavirus? Zero. Zero. This is peer-reviewed. It's published in a medical journal, done by highly respected professors. Similar results have been repeated uh, in other countries throughout the world, and yet I put a study like this up on my, on my uh, social media, and the ABC goes, oh, this is disinformation, misinformation. It's the facts, it's the results from a peer-reviewed study. Now, how can you possibly how can you possibly deny this evidence? The only way you can deny it is not to look at it. And this is our expert group, our National COVID Evidence Task Force. They haven't looked at it. Even though this study now is getting on to three months old, they say, no, we haven't even got around to looking at it. This it, it is it's just a, it's just an outrage and just a disgrace. It really is. There's no other. There's no other word for it. But the problem is, these are the people that basically in our bureaucracy that are advising our government, which our government are listening to. And I can understand the reasons why. If you're a member, if you're the person in government making decisions, you want to make sure all your decisions are based upon you know, the, um, the hierarchy of uh, experts that you coordinated, which all these bureaucrats. And if they're giving you a dud advice, it's very hard for you to then go and sort of challenge that. Let me ask you this question. Who appointed these people to be in this commission? Well, <laughs> that's, 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 a good, that's a good thing. It's the governments themselves. Now, there's another thing I found the other day. There was an article online about um, uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci. Now, irrespective of what you can see, think about Dr. Fauci, right? his position in the US he is actually the highest paid uh, federal government official in the US. Right? 
he got something that was like 450 or might have been $500,000. Now, converted out to about $600,000, right? All the health bureaucrats get paid more than he does. So you, I, I looked at the example in Queensland. The state of Queensland, with $7 million alone, have three government health bureaucrats that get more higher salary than what the chief in the US does. So these, these positions in Australia, I don't know how that's happened or how, that's, how it's become like that. But these these people are on you know, five, six, and seven hundred thousand dollars a a year. These are enormously uh, well paid jobs, and they've got this bureaucratic chain underneath. And it's it's it's. I can see that that's one thing I've seen in my time in Parliament, especially since I've been a member of the government. That the the bureaucrats in each department have such a really big say, and and when it comes to a portfolio like health. It's so difficult for uh, a member of the government to say, hang on, you blokes are wrong. Are are these people elected? No, they're appointed. They're appointed. Uh, Look, one of the the great concerns I've got, remember when I I was going to school, it was always considered, well, if you go into the public service, you get a little bit less pay, but you get the security. So there's a trade-off. So you get an earlier pension, you get a better pension requirements, um, but you get a little bit less pay. In the private sector, the salary might be high, but you're at greater risk. Huh? You might have to change jobs. You could be unemployed for a period of time. You know, not, not businesses, you know, I think, was it um, 80% of businesses fail after five years' time? So you, you do a little bit more. So there was sort of like this risk-reward ratio that encouraged you to go into the private sector to do entrepreneurial things. But that balance now seems to have flipped. And the highest paid salaries now also appear to be the most secure. So for so if a young person today, it's like, what are you going to do with life? Well, if you can get into the one of these public services and sort of like claw your way up the greasy pole, you, you get half a million dollars in salary. So why would you then go and risk trying some entrepreneur and something risky about developing a new product or new idea to market, which actually really, uh, you know, can change things around and really make people's lives a lot better. Why would you risk that if you've got the security and the high pay in the public service? So I think we've really got sort of things somehow or other, they've sort of turned turn around and become back to front where a lot of these um, bureaucrats have far too much say um, you know, as to what a government government actually does, and so they're unelectable. They're not. They're unelected. Uh, they're appointed by government. And then once they get in these positions, they're basically appointed for life, uh, you know, unless they find out they've done sort of something completely wrong, where they get the sack. Well, I think this makes for a, a wonderful story for an investigative journalist to dig as deep as they can into these people that have been appointed not elected, mm. and see if they've got any conflicts of interest and where they may lead, because mm. I have a feeling I know. That, well, uh, we'll, I we'll see. Not time. The truth eventually will always come out. It's just a matter of, of, of time. You know, there's a, oh, the truth always comes out. Now, um, there's been a few investors, there's a great investment journalist, a guy out of Brazil, that's done a lot of work on this, and he's actually 
what's interesting, he's from the far left side of politics. That's been often the far left side of politics that have been so anti-Trump. And he admits, he says, you know, he says, bloody Trump, Trump said this and he stuffed it all up, right? He said that was the, that was the problem, right? But he's been able to look through it and he's done some great investigative reports. There, there will come a time in the near future, and I don't know how long it will be, where investigative journalists or, or future generations will, will look at what we did and say, you guys are insane. You dropped, you, you abandoned reason, you abandoned logic, and as a result, you caused significant damage to your society. Mm, I agree with you there, Craig. Two quick questions. Yes. I, I've, I've interviewed Rod Cullerton before, uh, yes. ex-senator, who's from the Great Australian Party. And when I've had him on the podcast as well, because I reached out to you and him pretty much at the same yes. time. And, and last time we tried to do this conversation between us, the, uh, we couldn't get the internet to work properly. I told you, so. the Chinese had their wife. <laughs> <laughs> but there's a question that is around at the moment, and it's are, are we still operating under the law of the Commonwealth? Um, yes, yes, we are. Remember, we've got a constitution um, which divides the uh, powers between the states and the Commonwealth. And so where it comes to health, health is basically a state government responsibility. So where we see um, the actual ban on hydroxychloroquine, that is done at the state level. So in Queensland, it's criminalised. So I talked to a doctor uh, like Dr. Brian Tyson. He tells me, oh, you know, I've given hydroxychloroquine and thousands of patients and you would save, I've saved all these lives. I says, mate, you're in Queensland, you'd be in jail, it'll lock you up for saving people's lives. Six months in jail in Queensland, he, he couldn't believe it. So those, those legislations were all brought in by state governments. Um, the border closures that we're having, again, all state government regulations. Uh, what happens on have compulsory having to wear masks on public transport? Again, they're all state government regulations. Now, there's an argument that uh, you know, maybe we should change those constitutional arrangements that go back over a century and maybe health should be a federal government responsibility and get the federal government. So remember, you go to a public hospital in any state, it is run by the state government, not the federal government. The federal government might fund it and the federal government might decide what, uh, how they would direct the money through Medicare. Um, but the actual operation of it is run by the state governments. Mm, I found that really interesting recently with Victoria with their mask mandates and mm. Victoria went the hardest out of all the states, which is interesting. And I wonder what uh, compromise, uh, what, what evidence they must have or compromised photos of one of the political leaders down there. Well, yeah. I won't <laughs> you said, they said, oh, we're based it on the, on the science and the medical evidence. Okay, well, can you show it to us? What is it? Put it on the table and show us what the medical evidence actually is. Yeah, look, we hear all, all the, look, so much of this has been political. Uh, state government uh, leaders have found out that if they become, you know, really sort of bolshy and uh, lock their borders down their sin as these tough people that are saving everyone, you know, um, take, the, take the Queensland border closure between Queensland and New South Wales. Now, if that border was like the line in the sand, People from Sydney could travel all throughout New South Wales. They could travel to northern New South Wales. So if that Queensland border closure was effective, 
what you would have seen was all these COVID infections in northern New South Wales. And then this line of the sand where you, you know, so nothing above the nothing above the Queensland border, but we are budding up to the border, all the all the towns around it would have all these infections. There's not. So just, it just that proves that the, the border closure to Queensland achieved absolutely nothing. It was just well, I, all political. Well, we live in the northern part of New South Wales, and I can tell you that no one believes in this fairy tale anyway, or this this bullshit story. Yes, no. So everyone from Sydney. So because people from Sydney couldn't go to Queensland, right, they went to the north north coast of New South Wales. So therefore, you would have expected to have huge infection rates in the northern New South Wales, but they're not there. So, 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 so if, you have the, if that's a set borderline of Queensland, why aren't all these infections coming right up to the border? It, it just shows it was all about political. Remember, and these political decisions have had enormous harm on people. Like we heard... Right. We heard that story about, you know, uh, what was the, the poor young kid that was, um, um, was, was, I can't remember where it was, it might have been, they were up in your the north coast somewhere, and they wanted to go up to Brisbane Hospital and they wouldn't let them. And they had to try to fly down to Sydney. By the time they got to Sydney, they would, I think the, they, the, that mother had a miscarriage, or one of, lost one of the twins. There was a case in South Australia where a young kid, they didn't fly them from Melbourne, from Melbourne to South Australia because of, you know, all coronavirus restrictions, you know. People have lost their lives because because of these restrictions. And, and what I thought was just appalling, that that poor young girl, she was from Canberra, and she went, she wanted to see a dying dad, and they wouldn't let her see a dying dad. And then she wanted to go to a, she wanted to go to a dad's funeral. And they and she's from she was from the ACT. They hadn't had an infection, they hadn't had one infection in the ACT for, for months. And they wouldn't let her go to her dad's funeral and comfort her mum and a younger sister. And then the, and the, then all these politicians saying, well, I'm, I'm so tough, you know, I'm keeping you all safe. It was the most, one of the most disgraceful things that I've ever seen. Just completely unconscionable that you would do that. If you were weighing up the risks, the risk of uh, you know, something, the risk of uh, something bad happening or the risk of damage or something from allowing that girl to go to a dad's funeral and comfort her mum against the harm that you were causing her. It's a 10,000 to one, and yet they didn't do it. I just found that made me sick to the stomach that, that could, we'd have politicians in our country that would stoop to that. It is disgusting. It's horrendous. And it's disgraceful. Craig, I have loved having a chat with you today, and I really appreciate you spending an hour of your time Thanks, Pete. I appreciate chat, it. Chat with someone. Yeah, I just like myself. Yeah, well, you've been you've been bashed up in the bashed up in the media, you know. And the, the thing has got to be, uh, what does it say? Um, uh, you know, I may not agree with what you say, but I've got to defend to my death your right to say. And that should be one of the principles that we have in this country. We've got to defend free speech. And if an idea is wrong, you defeat. You don't defeat bad ideas by censorship. You defeat them by more debate and more discussion. And we've got to make sure that has got to be a principle that's going to be taught in schools. And we've got to get back to that. Otherwise, our society is going to regress in the years and decades to come. Very wise words and very truthful words, Craig. Um, it looks like I'm going to throw my hat into the ring and join uh, the political movement and yeah. see, 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 what, see what happens from that. 
I have no expectations. When you sit in a big room, always sit at the back of the room where you can see everyone. <laughs> I'll give you a tip. <laughs> well, I'm a very good listener and a very good observer. And, uh, mate, I, if we ever are in Parliament together, uh, yes. or I'd, I would love to share a meal with you uh, whenever you're up in North New South Wales or if I'm in Sydney, I'd love to, oh, well. I'd love to catch up for a meal. Because... It, was, it was funny, I was just saying, they had in the... Uh, on the papers the other day, they accused me of being the, the Pete Evans of the Liberal Party room. I thought, well, Jesus, says, uh, my cooking skills, I said it'd be like a, you know, a barbecued sausage on a piece of bread sort of thing. <laughs> I don't think that's a, that's a very good analogy somehow. Oh, mate. It, it's interesting. I had um, Tony Burke. Yes. Uh, he, when I used to... Before My Kitchen Rules, I was a, a TV chef and I'd cook food. And yes. It was interesting because he, tell, he told me many, many years ago, he goes, I would cook out of your cookbooks for members of parliament down in Canberra. <laughs> and, and we've kept in contact over the years and to say day here and there. And uh, I always thought that was great because, you know what, I, I'm very optimistic about the future, even with what is going on now. I'm very grateful for people like yourself that are not afraid to yeah. question the narrative it's and to stand up. Let me just say, if I was just say, sorry, I didn't mean I was jumping in. Young people today, I read so much about your kids at school about how terrible the future is and the doom and gloom that they get. Kids today have got the greatest, of, even though we're going through this craziness at the moment, they've got the greatest opportunity of any generation that ever been born in human history. The things that you can do today, uh, your ability of, of communications and, and travel, will, travel will come back. And to do, jo- to do sort of like work in the creative fields that, uh, you know, and, and sport, you look at women's sport, things like women's sports. Like when I was uh, growing up, when poor girls didn't get a look in when it came to sport. Today you've got the professional cricketers, you've got the professional golfers, you've got all these... Uh, professional um, AFL players, all these women having all these opportunities that had never existed before uh, in society that today's generation has. And now young people have got to, um, you know, we've got to get this idea out of their head that they've got all this doom and gloom and their future is so gloomy. Now, this is terribly destructive to our young people. We've got to say, yes, you guys, how lucky have you got it? You've got no idea how lucky you've got it today and the opportunities you've got in the future. That's the message that we've got to make sure that sure that we're getting we're getting across. So, sorry, I, I didn't mean to didn't mean to butt in, but I think that's just an, such an important point that all of us in public life have, have got to get away from selling this uh, doom and gloom, and really make sure that uh, future generations you know understand how optimistic that they should be about the future. I, I agree, mate. I will leave you with a personal request. And you don't need to answer it or do anything, but if there's anything in your power mm-hmm. to make a stand against coerced or mandatory vaccines in the future, you will have a, a hell of a lot of support from the Australian public for the people that choose to be vaccinated. Not a problem. You know, I think there needs to be freedom of choice, freedom of speech. And I feel like for any political party or leadership, especially now into 2021 with the vaccine, there is a a huge majority of people that were never 
probably against vaccines, but are very, very, very concerned now about this rushed vaccine. Mm. And if the government ever were to make it mandatory or mm. coercive, I think that would be a huge step in the wrong direction for so many reasons. And, and again, I don't feel like you need to comment yeah, on that, but I, I, it's I, just I, a request I, for if you. I could, if I could on that, but the Prime Minister has been, um, when he talked about it first, he, he, he gave an interview and there was a bit of like, not any criticism anyway, but he didn't sort of a, answer it fully. And some people interpreted that he was actually for mandatory vaccines. He's been very specific since that the federal government is not going to mandate vaccines. He's been very clear about that. Now, where the mandatory requirements can possibly come in is where private companies do so. Now, I understand under uh, the industrial relations law that you couldn't sack someone uh, if, say, if a company made it compulsory. You couldn't sack someone that was already in the job, but they have the potential to make it compulsory for new workers. Yeah. And the other one would be um, private businesses could potentially have a, uh, an option of making, uh, if you want to access their services, they could make it mandatory as a condition of entry to a certain place. But uh, yeah, um, private businesses are ultimately in the uh, business of making a profit. So if they mandate that sort of stuff and all of a sudden have a lot of people not turning up, that's going to be one of the things that will fix that. But look, and on the vaccines, absolutely we should make them uh, available to people. The people should have that freedom of choice, but it also should be an informed choice. And that's why it's important to have the debate. Now, I was criticised for putting up um, the, the US uh, CDC, which is Centre for Diseases. Um, they put up uh, some data. Uh, it's now probably, well, now over a month old about when they first started to roll out the vaccine, about some of the adverse events that they have. Now, even if you're the most uh, pro-vaccine person that you want to think everyone in the country must get vaccinated, right, you would actually want that information to be published because when the rollout starts in Australia, you're going to hear um, similar reports of what we've seen around the rest of the world. You're going to say, well, that's got to be expected. We expect it. We expect there to be a certain, certain number of, of adverse events. And it's that transparency that you would want that would build the confidence up in any program. But where you don't have that transparency, where you want to censor people, that's where people become anyone. You know, I'm a bit iffy about this. So all I'm saying is people should look at the data, make up their own mind. It should be freedom of choice uh, about the vaccine, as it should be freedom of choice for these other early intervention treatments that so many doctors around the world are talking about. Well said, mate. Love you, Craig. Thank you so much. Thanks, Look Craig. forward to, to sharing a meal. I do. Big I do. I tell you, uh, uh, unless you want a barbecue sausage with a, on a bread roll, a bit of barbecue sauce, I said, I'll leave it to you to cook. <laughs> I love a sausage. I'll probably go without the bread. We can talk about that on another chat. But uh, keep, keep, keep fighting for the, for, the every, for the Australian public, mate. Thanks, Craig. Appreciate it very much. Cheers. Cheers, mate. Bye. The information views and opinions expressed in this podcast should not be treated as a substitute for nutritional, medical or other advice by a qualified professional. Guests in this podcast express their own opinions, experiences and conclusions. Nothing in this podcast should be used to diagnose, treat, cure 
or prevent any medical condition. Neither Pete Evans nor any sponsor endorse any views, opinions or conclusions expressed or shared in this podcast.